I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, writer and poet Megan O'Rourke on living for years with an undiagnosed disease and how the stress of not knowing its cause only made it worse. And I think that the reality of many of these diseases is this murky middle ground in which, in my case, I had an infection that was real, that stress was making worse. But my illness was not caused by my mind. And later, the science behind autoimmune diseases as well as long COVID. One doctor explains why treatment is so tricky. The problem with long COVID symptoms is that the majority of them are what we call generic symptoms. They can be seen with everything. It's not like your third toe hurts and therefore we know it's long COVID. There are things like fatigue, shortness of breath, joint pain, memory issues, all of which can have many other causes. Long COVID, chronic disease, and the search for a cure. That's coming up on Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Over the last two years, the pandemic has changed our lives in so many ways. But for those who've battled debilitating symptoms from undiagnosable, invisible illnesses, the emergence and prevalence of long COVID has brought some much-needed attention to these mysteries. For years, the medical profession has been all too quick to dismiss exhaustion, body aches, and brain fog as side effects perhaps of modern living or as a psychological disorder. So why are chronic illnesses so hard to diagnose? And how are so-called COVID long haulers helping to refocus our attention onto autoimmune diseases? Poet and author Megan O'Rourke went on a quest for answers. In her book, The Invisible Kingdom, O'Rourke chronicles her decade-long battle with an undiagnosable mystery illness, and her search for the truth shines a light on the toll these can take on the body and the mind. Megan O'Rourke, welcome to Life Examined. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. There are so many interesting threads of this book that that bring us into the the moment we are in now with questions of COVID and long COVID and, and the history of certain undiagnosable illnesses. But I, I wanted to just start with, with your story, uh, which is a long one thinking about these questions and a lot of mystery in terms of um, things happening in your own body, which is so understandable as so many others deal with this. And I wonder for you, when you think about when this journey began and some of these questions started to arise, where, where does that take us? Yeah, it's a great question. I I don't have a very clear cut beginning, which is part of the strangeness of my journey. Um, I was sick and better and sick and better for a long time, as you say. But when I think about where it began, for me, it's the fall of 1997, a few months after I graduated from college, and I was walking down the street to go to work one morning on just a gorgeous fall day. When all of a sudden, out of nowhere, strange electric shocks started flickering up and down my body, it felt like a you know, swarm of bees was attacking me. And it was so severe, my legs started to spasm. And I had to stop and rub my legs until the sensation went away. And from then on, there were just these bouts where I would get these electric shocks daily for months on end. And they would last about half an hour and were quite agonizing. Um, and a whole host of other strange symptoms like drenching night sweats and strange bouts of fatigue or vertigo and pain came with it. And that's when I started kind of trying to figure out what was going on. Um, But it wasn't really for 11 more years, if you can believe it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that the journey and the quest deepened shortly after my mother died and I got really sick. Um, And at that point, committed myself to a kind of quest to understand what was happening. What's it like to live with with unexplainable pain? What does that what does that do yeah. to a person over a number of years? Yeah, it's such a it's a really good question. It's one I spent a whole book trying to answer. Um, and even today, the answer changes daily. I have to tell you, although the pain is more explained now, but I was in the grips of something I I had no words for, um, no explanation for, and. That was incredibly alienating, it turned out, Um, not just painful in the physical sense, but painful in a kind of psychological sense, because I really had no way to communicate it to anybody else. And I had no label for it that would allow others to easily recognize what was going on. And so to try to make myself and my suffering legible to others rested entirely on me, right? I had to find some way to describe what was happening. Um, with words that weren't there. 
And I think along the way, seeing many doctors and being told over and over, look, we can't find anything wrong with you. My own sense of reality got distorted and I started to not trust myself and to think um, at times that perhaps this was all in my head, even as at the same time, this kind of pilot flame of myself was held on to this conviction that something was wrong and somewhere somebody was going to help me. Yeah. How to, how to sort through that? when you reach that point of, am I, am I making this up? I mean, I, I can't find any, any facts or any experts that can tell me what this is. I just, that sounds like a distressing place to be. It was really distressing. And, you know, I, I wondered, you know, I'm a kind of, um, I'm a writer, I'm a journalist, I'm an open-minded, I think, and curious person. And as a writer, one of the features of my writing is that I'm willing to kind of examine myself and my own reactions. And so that meant that I was wondering, okay, maybe this is depression. You know, a doctor said mm. to me, look, I think maybe you're really stressed. Yeah. And my mother had died and I was really deep in the depths of grief. And I had a lot of physical symptoms that at the time I thought, okay, maybe this is grief. You know, maybe I'm so tired because I'm grieving her. And there's probably some truth to that, right? But so, yeah, I spent a long time doubting myself and then thinking perhaps this is depression even as as i'm saying to you like i'd had a mild bout of depression in college you know which was powerful enough to kind of remember vividly yeah. what it felt like yeah. and this was really nothing nothing like it it was kind of the opposite um which is to say when i was depressed in college for a couple months you know the, quintessential uh, sophomore slump, right? Sure. I felt a little apathetic. I felt a little like it was hard to find meaning. I was tired, but it was sort of, you know, I felt this weight of darkness on me kind of. It was a really distinct feeling. What I was now feeling was I had written a book. Um, my mother had died about a year ago. I was now in my mid-30s and I was ready to start a new book. And um, I wanted to have a family. And actually all these things were going really well for me in the kind of aftermath of the worst grief of losing my mother. And I was excited. I was sort of excited to get into this new stage of my life and build a family. And I felt an, almost an effervescence, right? And a hunger for okay. life. But my body was not coming along with me, right? My body felt like it was made of sand and my head was full of fog. So it was very strange. So where did you go from there? Uh, you had so many, so many different... Uh, conflicting symptoms that didn't probably take you to, you know, clearly what one diagnosis, but you had to start an investigation. So what did that look like for you? I began reading online because I was really curious why in this hyper-diagnostic age we live in, when you can get a diagnosis for almost anything, it seems, I was feeling so sick and there was no diagnosis out there. And I wondered, okay, what kind of diagnosis might this be? <laughs> and also, is anyone else going through this? And what I found, you know, online was that actually there were, I was not alone. I felt alone, but I was hardly alone. There were tens of thousands, if not millions of other people like me, you know, talking about the same set, very similar symptoms, very similar sets of problems. Many of them suggested seeing specialists, um, changing your diet, changing your sleep, you know, and making, you know, reducing stress. And a lot of them were seeing what they called integrative or functional doctors, which I began to see too, which are Western medical doctors, doctors with an MD who have mm -hmm. also embraced um, aspects of Eastern medicine or alternative medicine that they think might be helpful, including a lot about, you know, lifestyle. Um, and I went to see a bunch of these doctors and one of them immediately identified that I, something was not right with my thyroid, which in turn led me to another specialist in women's health who was a traditional Western doctor, but took a really open-minded approach to treating young women in particular. And she quickly found that I had an autoimmune disease called Hashimoto's. Um, anyway, and from there I went down this rabbit hole of, okay, once you have this autoimmune diagnosis, which is a diagnosis um, that basically tells you the problem is not just with my thyroid, it's a systemic problem. Mm. Because in an autoimmune disease, your immune system is attacking your own body, the thing it's supposed to protect. And so there's usually other things going on too than just the, the one organ being under attack, if that makes sense. It does. And I think this 
question of, of what an autoimmune disease is, how does it show up, and how little we know about it is maybe one of the most confounding aspects of Western medicine. I, I wasn't, can, you, can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. So you, you've hit the nail on the head. So this is exactly what emerged to me in my research was that, okay, I don't just have a problem with an organ that medicine is going to offer me a quick fix for. I have an autoimmune disease. Okay. So we don't understand very much about autoimmune diseases, it turns out. Um, as one researcher at Harvard that I spoke to told me, we're about a decade behind where we are with cancer, in his view. Mm. Um, for a long time, immunologists thought that the immune system could not even attack the body, right? That, 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 that a tenet of the immune system was that it defended us from problems that were not ourselves, right? From viruses and pathogens, but it would never attack ourselves. Well, as it turns out, it does. And in fact, it's doing so, it seems to, autoimmune diseases seem to be increasing in Western countries like the United States and for reasons we don't fully understand. What I quickly found living with an autoimmune disease was that this combination of the mysteriousness of the systemic problem of autoimmunity, right? That your immune system has turned on yourself. Um, the lack of knowledge we have about it and the richness of the metaphor mm. <laughs> of your own defense system starting to undermine your your very body, the, the thing it's supposed to protect, just led many people with autoimmune diseases, including myself, down these paths of sort of self-interrogation, right? Where you start to think, well, Maybe I'm the cause of my autoimmune disease somehow, right? Especially if it's taken you years to get a diagnosis where you're already in that headspace where you're constantly doubting your subjectivity and doubting reality. I think yeah. then a lot of people, especially a lot of women that I interviewed, get an autoimmune disease diagnosis and feel that somehow the fact that their body is attacking itself is like a metaphor for some inner conflict, right, in their lives. So there's both a scientific mystery and a kind of existential mystery um, in autoimmune disease. And we can we can talk about both of those if you'd like. What was the experience like trying to probably work through the Western medical system, which I imagine was this strange patchwork of experiences that have almost no connection to each other. I, I, I can only imagine what that was like. My experience was strange. It, it took me more than a decade to get any kind of diagnosis, even though I was quite sick. Um, and in that time, I was ended up seeing a whole variety of not only doctors and GPs, but specialists. Uh, at one point, I had nine different specialists, none of whom ever communicated with each other. Um, and each of whom I had to sort of convey the reality of my symptoms to in a way that would hopefully generate their interest from their specialist's right. point of view, right? So I did find myself, I think like many patients I spoke to, sort of presenting my case differently to different ones, but also trying to say, but all these other things are going on and finding that you know, my really lovely neurologist would say, I just don't know what to make of any of those symptoms. Um, my rheumatologist would only be interested in the rheumatological symptoms, right? And there was no one quite stepping back and looking at the whole and saying, well, why is this person having so many neurological and rheumatological, you know, and joint problems all at once? Like, what's the cause of that? And in my case, there was a series of answers, which meant it was really like, you had to be a bit of a medical detective to try to figure this out. And that was just not how Western medicine is set up to be, right? Um, yeah, so I, like many patients, felt that the specialists sometimes were just crossing their organ off the list and saying, well, it's not caused by this organ. Yeah. Right? yeah. But it was often affecting that system. Um, yeah. I wonder how you think gender played a role in any of this. You you being a woman, um, we've there's a long history of of women I think not being taken seriously in medical literature or in how they're perceived in the medical system. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. It was my perception as I went along that the fact that I was a young woman um, who otherwise seemed healthy, you know, I ran, I was slim, 
I had low cholesterol, right? These were things my doctors were interested in. Um, it was definitely my perception that that affected how I was cared for and the indifference I often received. And in fact, when I did some research, that perception turns out to be true. Women are treated differently from men by medicine. Um, the stereotype of the sickly woman, you know, whose disease is strictly psychological still, you know, casts a long shadow in doctor's offices. Um, examples in med medical literature of problem patients are nearly always women. And so it becomes very hard as a young woman whose symptoms are not immediately, you know, finding analogs in your blood work to be believed. There are, in fact, two problems. One is that as a woman testifying about your own experience, you're met with a certain kind of implicit bias that quickly imagines um, that your symptoms are, you know, psychological. You're it's also easy for doctors to do that because we simply know less about female biology than male biology. Um, until recently, um, many medical studies were conducted almost exclusively on biologically male animals because it was thought that the hormones of female animals would actually complicate the studies. You know? right. So therefore they didn't study it rather than thinking, huh, well, maybe that's why we should study it. So yeah, it's it's absolutely the case that that gender plays a, a large role in the delivery of care in, you know, in many doctors' offices, often unconsciously, right? It's not always conscious bias that's at work. I'm sure you looked into this, but I mean, historically, stories of of how women would have been treated, maybe with words like hysteria or, you know, major psychological problems, that stuff must show up quite a bit. Yeah. So I go on, I talk about this a lot in the book because the, you know, the, the researcher in me thought, God, hysteria, the history of hysteria has to be playing a role here. And I think it really is. So in the 19th century, there was this epidemic of diagnosing hysteria, right, in, in Victorian culture in England and America, where um, women who were going to the doctors who often did have physical complaints, interestingly, saying things like fatigue, um, brain fog, abdominal pain, were diagnosed with something called, the doctors called at the time, hysteria. And Early on, they thought this was a physical organic disease and they searched for answers in the nervous system and they didn't find any. And sure enough, with that uncertainty and the fact that these female patients kept saying, I'm still not better, it's almost as if male authority couldn't tolerate that, right? Yeah. And very quickly, you can see it happen that as soon as all of their theories run out, there's this pivot to it's psychological. Um, and Freud comes along, you know, there's others too, but Freud basically comes along and Freud has this really important idea that was meaningful in many ways, which is that sometimes we, you know, repress emotions and they end up having physical symptoms mm. and we don't even know it. Right. And that's the key part. We don't even know it. And so Freud really underscores this idea that sometimes the patient who insists that her mysterious symptom is really physical is really not to be trusted because she's so repressed the deep psychological truth of something, right? That her insistence is in fact a sign of her repression <laughs> of that truth. Yeah. And it basically that, you know, I don't think many doctors think of themselves as Freudians, right? I don't think I don't think Freud is consciously in the in the lab room, right? In the exam room rather. But I think that idea of Freud's is still with us. And in fact, if you look at the DSM over the years, it tells us that, you know, these, I, we have new terms for this, which is conversion disorder, et cetera. You know, these somatoform disorders, these are diseases in which people are thought to have, you know, a psychological cause showing up in the body. Um, they're thought to be suffered overwhelmingly by women, which you know, either you buy that or you think, well, the fact that we think that is science that we're actually dismissing a lot of women's physical illnesses. That's such an interesting question about bringing Freud into this conversation and, and what we know now. And the, I mean, the fact that how discriminatory it was towards women is is shocking. And yet 
we still sit with these really complex questions. I mean, for example, you would look at someone like uh, Bessel van der Kolk and the idea of trauma being stored in the body in very mysterious ways. And I think we're still trying to make sense of what is this mind-body connection that we don't quite know much about, right? Yeah. And in fact, in the book, I try to really trace this out because it's not that I'm saying or want to suggest that the mind doesn't have any role in these illnesses. Um, the mind, first, first of all, is physical, right? It's in the body. Yeah. It's, there's a, so I do think, um, you know, 100 years from now, when we look back at this era, we're going to, the, the then modern medicine, you know, is going to think how strange it is the way we talk about mind and body. There's certainly a lot of evidence suggesting that trauma and stress play a huge role in infecting our nervous system and our immune systems, right? And so I spend quite a lot of the book trying to really wrestle with that um, and make space for that. And it was certainly my own experience that stress exacerbated my symptoms. But what I try to lay out too is that in my experience, we tend toward black and whites, right? We tend toward this sort of mechanistic model of the body that Western medicine offers where your body is like a car, you know, the carburetor breaks down. Is that even what a carburetor does? I don't know. I'm not a car person, right? You. You, go to the car yeah. you go to the carburetor doctor <laughs> and he's like, here, let me fix this part, right? Yeah. Um, and then the other side is that we're very quick to, many people I met wanted to tell me that my illness was entirely due to some kind of trauma or repressed psychological reality, yeah, right? right? I I don't know if you've heard of the work of John Sarno, yeah. someone who's done a lot of really interesting work on kind of helping people heal back pain where, you know, he basically encourages you to recognize repressed stress and anger and emotions and name those situations and help release the tension of clenching parts of your body and restricted blood flow. And it really works for some people. But what was fascinating, it did not work for me at all. It didn't have any effect on my symptoms. I did it. I worked with a Sarno practitioner, the whole thing. There were a lot of people who just wanted to insist that was because my I was so repressed. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so there's this kind of, do you see what I mean? There's a sort of toggling between it's all physical and then it's like, no, we can cure it all by changing our mind. Yes, yes. And that's dangerous. Right. And I think that the reality of many of these diseases is this murky middle ground in which, in my case, I had an infection that was real, that stress was making worse. But my illness was not caused by my mind. Right. My mind was and my stress and my emotions were probably affecting its you know, day to day rhythms. So, yeah, that, that's what I try to get us to in the book is. What about that middle ground and why aren't we looking more deeply at it and trying to kind of come up with a framework for talking about it Yeah, um, that we seem to lack? So when you take a step back and, and you look kind of at what you think this, this mystery leads us towards, if a diagnosis exists, what, how do you now understand where your body is with all of this? What, what do you think is that? at the cause or the roots, if, if there is even an answer to that? In my own case. Yeah. My, so over the years, I received a series of diagnoses, the last of which was just a few months ago. Um, and with that last one, I feel I now have a kind of clear picture. Um, hmm. So in my case, what's the, the most recent diagnosis I got is actually that I have a genetic disorder known as hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, in which your body simply doesn't make connective tissue, you know, think of collagen, right? We all know collagen in the face should be very elastic. And, you know, we want it to stay young and elastic. Um, mine is very brittle, um, just genetically, I have sort of a faulty protein. And it means all kinds of things. It means that um, my veins are a little too flexible. My joints are too flexible. And that might not sound very bad, but what it can do is mean that you're never getting enough blood to your head because your veins don't constrict properly. And that also you're very tired because your muscles and your body are trying to compensate for this kind of hyperflexibility that leaves your body, in fact, quite unstable. This made a lot of sense of the pain I had had for many years. 
It also, but it didn't explain everything. And I had also been diagnosed with Lyme disease that had been missed for quite a long time and with an autoimmune um, disease, uh, Hashimoto's or kind of autoimmune thyroiditis. And at various points too, I've had like very different kinds of autoimmune activity in my body. I think taken together, the three of those make a lot of sense to me. I mean, I clearly have thyroid disease. I take medication for it that helps. And I clearly had some kind of infection that was treated by antibiotics because when I received the Lyme diagnosis and took antibiotics, I went in the space of weeks from being almost bedridden to being able to run, you know, three to five miles pretty regularly again. So, yeah. So, and it's interesting. One of the things I try to capture in the book is that a lot of people suffering from or living with these complex, often invisible illnesses that don't quite get better after they're given a medication or after an initial diagnosis, it's that they have an intersecting array of conditions. And there's people working on, and some of the researchers I spoke to are working on the idea that a lot of these kind of intersect, that there's a kind of Venn diagram, right? That for some reason, people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome sometimes have worse outcomes with viruses and infections. Um, Lyme disease seems to trigger autoimmune activity in some people in the way that COVID seems to trigger autoimmune activity in some people, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I think we're coming to this kind of multifactorial model um, that I think will be a paradigm of future medicine. Yeah. And such mystery woven in as a child's, I had Lyme disease and Mm. I don't know if it has impacted me. I I remember Mm. the inability to get out of bed for two weeks and what felt like 80 pounds on my head, you know, as I lay on a pillow. But right, we sit with these things knowing just perhaps if we bring this to the present moment, like COVID, that one disease or virus may not impact everyone the same way, which is so hard and confusing as we make sense of all of this. Absolutely. So this is one of the things that I really try to lay out in the book is that I think we're at a moment of paradigm shift. And funnily enough, I was writing this before the coronavirus pandemic and slightly watched in horror as the coronavirus pandemic vividly dramatized this. But, you know, we used to think thanks to germ theory and modern medicine, that a virus or bacterium kind of affected us all the same way. That was one of Koch's postulates, right? That he's one of the founders of germ theory and he comes along and he says, there's actually these little pathogens making us sick. It's not random fevers. It's We can name them, we can identify them. They have distinct attributes. They cause distinct symptoms and they behave roughly the same way in everyone's bodies. A lot in that was really important and true, but the part that's not quite true, it seems, is that, in fact, viruses can collide with an individual biology in really different ways. And in some cases, in a subset of people, they unleash a host of very perplexing after effects in the body, often driven by or related to your own immune system and nervous system. Um, So this is what we're quite clearly seeing before our eyes with COVID-19 long haulers or what we call long COVID. Where do you think the science is going on this? Do you, do you think mm-hmm. there's, you know, the, the money and the backing that say we've had with cancer, which you say is a decade ahead? Is there promising work being done on any of this stuff? Yeah, I, I have a yes and no answer. It's a no, I have a yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean into optimism. <laughs> you know, 10 years ago, I would have felt very pessimistic. Um, today, I can say the scope of the problem of long haul COVID, its visibility is definitely bringing funding to particularly the case of long COVID. And as you say, what is brain fog? What is this fatigue? There's a lot of money to research this. The question is, is that research going to go in the right places or explore the right avenues? Um, And my hope is that medical researchers are really gonna listen to patients and learn from patients a little bit um, and not just explore things like, was it their anxiety when they got sick that led them to now have these symptoms? Because that is being explored. I just saw a research paper 
um, on that question. So there's is though at the same time, you know, a group of researchers, many of whom I write about in my book, who are looking at this emerging paradigm of how infections hit smaller subsets of people. And some of them are working with genetics, some of them are immunologists, and there's this whole field, right, of kind of intersecting genetic immunology and virology, right? And so I am optimistic in that sense because for one thing we have technologies that we never had before that are letting us look at the complex interaction of our microbiome and viruses and the genetic entanglements and with our bodies and all of this that we just couldn't really study before so my hope is that with this influx of money and attention some of those people who I think are doing really fascinating work are going to dig in and start getting some answers. When you think about where you've come with this, and you now know you're living with a complex series of, of illnesses, and I, I wonder if there's a part of you that has somehow made some kind of peace with this, or is able to find meaning knowing that maybe this probably doesn't feel fair and that you didn't want to spend 10 years researching this when you wanted to just attend to your life writing poetry or raising a family. And so I think on that larger kind of existential question, how have you learned to be with all of this? When I first got sick, or acknowledged to myself rather that I was sick, um, my overriding objective was to get better, right? Um, I did not acknowledge that there was a world in which I was not going to get fully better. And that took up a lot of my energy. And over time, I think the journey that I was on was a journey of not necessarily moving from ignorance to cure, <laughs> but one from ignorance to acceptance of uncertainty mm. um, and of kind of radical vulnerability of our bodies. Um, in ways that were a real struggle for me personally to let into my life, right? I had that sort of American, just do it. I can use my will and find an answer. Um, so I'm really careful about not wanting to suggest that, you know, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? I, I don't feel like it was all worth it because in the end I gained this mortal wisdom that I now have, uh -huh. <laughs> right? Um, I wish it were different. I wish I had not lost a decade of my life to this illness. I wish I could have my 30s back. I'll never get them back. But that said, I do feel changed by the illness. And I do feel there are things I understand now that I didn't. I was very naive about how my body worked and how medicine worked. And I do feel really grateful to have been well enough to write this book and talk about it, right? And I think I find personal meaning in the hope of making some of these invisible illnesses more visible. That's not too hokey an answer. It's really true, you know? Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a complicated, I'm changed. I wouldn't wish for it to be so, <laughs> but given that it is so, there there is meaning in that and there is a reality in that. I've been speaking with Megan O'Rourke author of the new book, The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness. Megan, I, I, I'm so glad we could talk about this today and that you could share your story on KCRW. Um, I really, really appreciate the time. Jonathan, I was so happy to be here. Thanks for talking. And a quick update from the team at Life Examined. We've recently launched a Life Examined Facebook group where we invite you to respond, engage in friendly conversation, and pose your own questions. And one question I'd like to ask is, after listening to Megan O'Rourke and our next guest, how would you like to see doctors shift their approach in treating these mystery illnesses? You can find the group by going to kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. We'll be back with Dr. David Agus from USC after this short break to discuss the latest science, or lack thereof, of long COVID. Stay close. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled, 
This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Megan O'Rourke, author of The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness, address some of the challenges for millions of Americans who are fighting autoimmune diseases. In addition to O'Rourke's personal struggle, she talked about the growing but rarely discussed second crisis to hit the healthcare system, a pandemic of chronic illness triggered by the coronavirus. So what are doctors and researchers working on? How exactly does the virus create long-term havoc in the immune system? And how do we close the gap between suffering and healing? Dr. David Agus is a professor of medicine and the founding director and CEO of the Lawrence J. Ellison Institute for Transformative Medicine at the University of Southern California. Dr. David Agus, welcome back to Life Examined. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. We've been speaking with Megan O'Rourke about the, the complications, physically, psychologically, about what it is to live with an autoimmune disease. And I think this also brings up questions of what it means to live with something like long COVID. I, I'm curious, from a medical scientific standpoint, how do we make sense of something like an autoimmune disease? What do we know about it? You know, autoimmune diseases are very difficult because we can measure, for example, the antibodies in the autoimmune disease in the blood but we can't measure the effect. And so most of the effects are in the brain. And we're seeing the same thing with uh, long COVID is that it is in the brain. And when you can't measure that, it's very difficult to develop treatments. It's very difficult to optimize how we care for the patient. And it's very difficult to have a discussion with the patient because we don't have something you know, to talk about. There's something unmeasurable. It's very, very difficult in the medical world to actually care for it. Mm. You say unmeasurable. What what does that mean? Uh, symptoms that can't be measured, uh, a disease or virus that can't be unmeasured. What is that? So when a patient comes and you know they have symptoms, w- what we like is to have some large metric to know, are things getting better or worse? Mm. The symptoms they describe, it's very frustrating for that patient, but they may be over the last 24 hours. They may be over the last 30 days. It's very hard to tell. And if something is, a, say, a, a marker of 10, is it an 11 today or is it a 9 today? Are we trending the right direction? And when you can't measure that, it's very difficult. And then you want to do clinical trials to develop a treatment. It's almost impossible because you need a quantitative metric to know what the intervention is working. So it makes it a very difficult field. And it scares a lot of drug developers away from the field because without a quantitative metric, it is remarkably difficult to get something with a regulatory approval. And so you have a feel that not a lot of things are being developed for. There's not a lot of progress in. Interesting. How, how would you describe exactly what an autoimmune disease is? So an autoimmune disease we characterize as you make an immune response, your powerful immune system that fights off pathogens and you know from bacteria to viruses to anything foreign, it recognizes something in your body as foreign mm. and you make an immune response. And it probably happens because a virus or something comes in and it was similar to a protein in the body and they cross react with that. And that immune response can cause symptoms. And that immune response can be to a nerve. That immune response can be to something else in the body. We see it in kidneys. We see it in the heart, in many organs in the body, and the ramifications from it. The difficult part, it's very hard to turn that off without turning off the entire immune system. And so we see diseases like lupus, for example, when they get very aggressive, we have to do bone marrow transplants. We have to actually knock out the whole immune system in an attempt to reset it. Aggressive treatment but it can work. The hope is we can get a lot better at targeting just what's on rather than hitting the whole immune system with an atomic bomb, if you will. Wow. So, I I mean, I've never quite heard of this. In very extreme cases, you have to reset, almost rebuild the entire immune system. It's like putting a new code into the computer or something. You know, the immune system is amazing because, you know, as we see with, you know, the viruses and all, it can last its immune response and have a memory for your whole life. So the problem is if you make an immune response to something in the body, that memory is there. And it is almost impossible to get rid of that memory. That memory has served us well over most of our lifetime. But when that immune response targets something in our own body, targets ourself, that's when we get in trouble. And that reset is obviously dramatically aggressive, seriously toxic. And we have to do it in certain cases. 
but we're going to learn to get better about just targeting the individual immune response to the to the uh, autoimmune disease. That's where we have to go. And the hope is we can get research there to really make an impact. It's interesting. In my work as a therapist, this reminds me of kind of trauma, early childhood trauma, right? Memories that get stuck somewhere and have nowhere to go, but can inform an entire psyche or the way someone sees the world. Yeah. I mean, and again, this was an advantage through most of our life. And it just happened through luck of the draw that this particular immune response is something on the outside also hit something on the inside. The three-dimensional shapes were similar enough that it bound to something in the body. And that's obviously what can trigger these diseases. And I know that immunosuppressant drugs can be fairly brutal and dangerous for folks, right? Because in essentially you're taking a lot of that immune system offline and then you're vulnerable to lots of other things. Oh yeah, the immune system is a remarkable surveillance system that has evolved over a million years and is tremendously sophisticated. And we're just beginning to understand it. But when you have to dampen down the entire immune system so that you can get rid of this autoimmune response, there are certainly ramifications from infection to increased cancer to other things. And that, that's what's worrisome. And in today's world where you have a virus that is you know, causing you know, the entire globe to shut down, if I dampen your immune system, it certainly puts you at puts you at dramatically higher risk. Yeah. So this brings up the question of long COVID, and I mean, I, I've been amazed at uh, the impact this has had on people I know. On you know what we these support groups that have been popping up all over the globe. People wondering if they have long COVID or they don't have long COVID. Lots of questions, David. So, uh, what can you tell us about what we know about long COVID right now? So it's real. First of all, yeah. I mean, we know that. And, you know, the problem is, is that we can't measure it. So it's very hard to study or quantify a system that you can't measure. Um, it's a neurotropic virus. So this is a virus that can affect nerves. And many of the symptoms we're seeing in long COVID are from nerves, from the brain and other nerves in the body. We're seeing it in developing fetuses. If a mother is infected, they can affect the hearing of the child who's born. Mm. We're seeing it in adults where the dominant side effects can be fatigue, can be uh, uh, blurry thinking, can be uh, other uh, effects of the brain, again, that we can't measure. We have no treatment for at present, and we can't, can't quantify. So how do you develop a treatment when the endpoint you can't really quantify you could say, is it gone? But I can't say, is it 10% better, 20% better when you can't measure it? It's very difficult and obviously tremendously frustrating for the patient side. Talk about some of the symptoms that you're noticing with long COVID. The problem with long COVID symptoms is that the majority of them are what we call generic symptoms. They mm -hmm. can be seen with everything. So they're not specific. It's not like your third toe hurts and therefore we know it's long COVID. There are things like fatigue, shortness of breath, joint pain, memory issues, uh, 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 you know, inability to remember you know, names or recent events, all of which can have many other causes. And so when you have this constellation of symptoms that are not specific for a disease, but associated, again, it makes it more difficult. And so we've seen this dramatic increase. The numbers vary because again, how do you define long COVID? If I'm a little bit tired, is that long COVID? If I'm very tired, is that long COVID? And that's what's difficult. And that's why you see you know, the incidents go from 10% to 40% in different studies, because there aren't yet definitions of what truly long COVID is. I think this is what makes it psychologically so difficult for people, because when it's immeasurable, you begin to wonder if you yourself are going a little crazy, or you're getting really sick, or you're getting better, or you should be finding different treatments for all of these different things uh, through various means, right? I mean, it's pretty distressing. It, it, it's distressing, you know, it's distressing from the patient side, from the doctor's side. When you tell a doc, hey, listen, I'm just extra tired, the first yeah. thing they say is, well, you know, it may be long COVID. It may just be you're not sleeping well. It may be you're stressed. It may be COVID affected your finances. And, and I'm convinced you're stressed. So it really isn't long COVID. And that's what's difficult. There's no test for it. And so you've convinced yourself many times, I'm basically getting crazy. Um, in reality, it's the virus causing these symptoms months or a year later. But we can't, have, there's no test for that. We can't document that. And that's what makes it really frustrating. Yeah, and it must be so frustrating, of course, as you said, for a medical professional, right? You want to be able to prescribe or to give or to talk about a treatment, but instead, you must feel almost paralyzed. 
Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, because, you know, obviously it's worse from the patient perspective. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not complaining about us, but it is difficult because there are no treatments, right? What we know is that if you're vaccinated, and especially if you're boosted, the incidence of long COVID is dramatically lower, but it's not zero. What we know is, is that right now there are no specific treatments that can work. There is some data that getting a booster when you have long COVID may have some benefit. Um, and that may be somehow augmenting your immune response against some viral particles or something of the virus. Although, again, we just don't know. It may be time is the reason all these people got better. And so we're at a crossroads now is that if you're a drug company or you're a research lab, how do you develop a therapy for something when there's nothing you can really measure? And it's very hard to make that diagnosis. When you know you have a patient who comes in saying, I'm fatigued, I have memory issues, it could be one of 20 things. And so if it's not homogeneous, the population, any treatment may or may not work in one of those 20 diseases. So given that you're not sure what you're treating, it's almost impossible to develop a treatment. Do you think there is any hope out there, whether it's in the pharmaceutical world or in medical research? Where do you see any of this going? I, I think, yeah, I think we're going to start to develop what we call biomarkers, you know, blood tests that are associated with long COVID and will give us the ability of making the diagnosis. The reason you're having these symptoms is you do have an aberrant immune response or you do have something remaining from the virus that we're going to need to target. And I think that there's some research ongoing now at several universities in the United States and the United Kingdom uh, that are showing some, you know, encouraging pilot data that I hope comes to fruition, because that will really enable that next step. But right now, it's frustrating. One thing that uh, our first guest, Megan O'Rourke, talked about was the difficulty of trying to make her way into the medical system when she had so many symptoms that required attention from so many different specialists, but maybe didn't add up to anything they could understand. I mean, For those that oftentimes feel dismissed walking in with these type of symptoms, what would you tell them? What advice would you give them? It's difficult, right? I mean, the the constellation of symptoms, you know, from long COVID to autoimmune diseases, they range from, do you see a neurologist? Do you see a rheumatologist who classically studies autoimmune diseases? Do you see your general practitioner? Um, They're all different. And that's what makes it really, really hard. Um, and in, in especially in today's world where, you know, the medical system shut down for two years. Most people didn't go to the doctor. So there's an enormous backlog now um, of, if you will, deferred maintenance as well as deferred visits. And so getting into any doctor is difficult. And I can only imagine the stress when you go to one doctor and say, I'm not the right for this condition. Go to this one right. or that one. Each one having a month or two wait time just adds to the issues that are going on now. Do you think at some point we will begin to think of COVID not as something that knocks you out for a couple of weeks, but maybe hangs around a lot longer, something that's really more of a long-term illness? Yeah, and I think we've seen that with other viruses. Um, you know, we all make different immune responses to viruses. Some of them are neutralizing and they get rid of the virus. Others of them may just be temporizing and the virus may stay there. And we don't yet have the ability of quantifying the difference in your immune response and mine. And so as we go forward, we're going to get better at that. And we have to get better at that. And so this is not unique to COVID. We've seen it with things like EBV and some other viruses. And I think that we in the medical world have to get better at the antivirals now in those individuals because we have drugs that work, right? The Pfizer drug works um, and other drugs work. And they may work in people who have some residual viral effects. Um, And at the same time, the autoimmune phenomena, that is your immune response targeting other parts of your body, we have to get better about squelching that specifically. And when we have those two things, I think we're going to do a lot better against these disorders. Yeah. You mentioned earlier on that, you know, we we see symptoms of, of long COVID or autoimmune diseases showing up in the brain. And, and I don't know if I'm understanding this right, but how do we then begin to distinguish things like that between psychosomatic diseases or things that are more psychological in nature? I mean, how, how do I make that distinction? We, we just don't know. I mean, right now they're, they're, they're associations, right? I had COVID and a month later I felt fatigue, therefore it may be associated. But the, the true answer is we just don't know. When you have COVID or any viral infection, there's associated with depression afterwards. It may not be directly from the virus. Mm-hmm. It may be the fact that you were indoors for three weeks, that you didn't have any associations with friends, that you didn't have any sunlight. 
that inflammation may have the effect on the brain. So it wasn't the virus itself, but it was your immune response and that inflammation that made the brain go into a depressive state. We just don't know. I mean, that brain is remarkable, right? It controls, it's what differentiates us as humans. And at the same time, we have no ability to really know how it works. And we have no ability to measure its function, to quantify any of these psychiatric uh, issues. I can't quantify depression. There's no test for depression. There's no blood test. There's no imaging test. There's no test for any psychiatric disorder. And that's what makes it really difficult. How do you study something you can't measure? And this makes me wonder if so much of the future of at least that type of medicine, whether it's for uh, mental disorders or what have you, is going to turn more into brain knowledge, brain research, scans, uh, understanding how parts of the brain interrelate. Do you think that's true? Oh, uh, no question about it. You know, listen, I'm a cancer doctor, so it's easy for me I give a drug, did the cancer stop growing or did it get smaller? I know right away. If I didn't know, I would be giving lots of drugs and, you know, just saying, did the patient live or die? And I don't want to do that, right? I don't want to change right away to get it better. Well, the only way I can do that now is by questioning the patient with anything psychiatric. And the problem is these are multifactorial disorders. And so what you want is to get incremental improvements. You're not going to get overall you know, resolution of every symptom. And so it's very hard to measure through questioning incremental improvements. And so we have to develop better ways to image not just the brain, but the function of the brain. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to happen over the next 10 years. You look at the NIH budget, you know, $40 billion or so. How much of that actually goes to tests that are actually quantifying and imaging? The answer is almost none. And so we do a lot to biology. We're getting better and better at biology. We now have to get into the measuring way. And I think that's what's going to be exciting, a new frontier. Technology has been tremendous in the computing area, in the machine learning, in the AI areas. Now to actually apply those brains and those you know, technologies to our brain is going to be exciting. Any final thoughts for those that have been listening and wondering if, if they themselves struggle with long COVID, if they have it, if they're worried they have it? What, what would you tell any of those, of those listeners? It is tremendously frustrating. That being said, you know, we have to just push through. You're in charge of your own healthcare. Go to your doctor and first of all, make sure that's what it is. You'd hate it to be some other disease that was easily treatable that you just said, oh, I had COVID, that's what it must be. So I want people to do the maintenance that they need to do. Go to the doctor for the regular checkups, get those blood draws to make sure that it's not something easily reversible. I've been speaking with David Agus at the University of Southern California. Always a pleasure to have you on, Dr. Agus. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. And as I mentioned earlier, we invite you all to our Facebook group to continue the conversation and to explore the question of how would you like to see doctors shift their approach in treating these mystery illnesses? I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.